common sense, honest conversation, and thought-provoking discussions thrive in a completely independent forum. This is the Roundup Podcast. Here now is your host, Jeff Eager. Hello and welcome to the Oregon Roundup Podcast. This is your host, Jeff Eager, coming to you for the first time in a bow boy, about a month or so, I think. But we have a very exciting interview for you today. Uh, Billy Williams, who was the U.S. attorney for Oregon a few years ago, he's been a prosecutor for 30 years in Oregon, and he has some very serious concerns about ballot measure 110. I think you'll enjoy the talk in which Billy shares kind of how 110 actually interacts or doesn't interact with prosecutors and the criminal justice system and how that uh, has helped contribute to the drug crisis we have here in Oregon. Hope you enjoyed the uh, interview and I'll talk to you when it's done. Okay. And now we have Billy Williams, who is the former U.S. attorney for Oregon, uh, former senior deputy district attorney for Multnomah County, and now is a partner at the law firm of Best Best and Krieger, which has offices throughout California and Washington, D.C. and right here in Bend, Oregon. Billy, welcome to the Oregon Roundup podcast. Thanks, Jeff. It's an honor to be here. Thanks for joining us. And uh, why don't you just start off by kind of walking listeners through your lengthy prosecutorial career. Sure. Yeah, I joined the the district attorney's office in uh, Portland after law school in 1990. Um, I should say during law school, at the end of my first year of law school, I was a law clerk at the U.S. attorney's office. So got to know a lot of people there over the next two years and actually was able to uh, co-try um, a felony federal trial. Uh, uh, but that really um, focused my interest into ultimately becoming a prosecutor. And so I spent a decade in the 90s um, handling everything from theft to aggravated murder. Um, ultimately, I, I focused on crimes of violence and involving crimes against children as well as adults and every form of murder uh, to include uh, capital murder or aggravated murder, as it's called in Oregon. And then I had an opportunity to go to the U.S. Attorney's Office, uh, uh, became the Indian Country Assistant U.S. Attorney and Tribal Liaison, uh, and worked with, uh, ultimately worked with all nine tribes in Oregon on a host of issues over the years. Is something that I also did in every position that I held in the U.S. Attorney's Office over the next 21 years. Um, six, the last six of those were as U.S. Attorney. Great. Um, and, and so the U.S. Attorney for Oregon, that's a presidentially appointed position, right? That's correct. It, I started out is, as uh, under what's called the Vacancy Reform Act and when the presidentially appointed U.S. attorney leaves office, it's typically the first assistant who is put into that position by statute. Uh, you're selected by the attorney general, who at the time was Eric Holder. And then for the second appointment under that statute uh, was A.G. Uh, Loretta Lynch. And then ultimately by the chief judge at the time was Judge Mossman, who has the authority to name the interim U.S. attorney until there's presidency appointed U.S. attorney. And then um, I went through a process um, in uh, 2017 into 2018 of process of 
interviewing and ultimately being nominated to be presidentially appointed as U.S. attorney. So I just it's been a huge honor uh, to have served in two administrations um, in that position. And just to clarify, you served under a Democrat administration and under a Republican administration, and you're not a political guy. Correct. I've always felt that any form of being a prosecutor, your job is to be apolitical. You don't make decisions based on politics, certainly. And uh, under different administrations, there might be different priorities. And, and so that can have an impact to some degree on what you do. But you're, you're the chief federal law enforcement officer for a district, the District of Oregon. And you have a number of assistant U.S. attorneys working in, in Oregon. It's three different divisions, the criminal division, the civil division, and the asset recovery and money laundering uh, division. So different roles. But in my view, and for just for me personally, I'm, I'm, I'm not a political person. I believe in, if you will, finding the middle ground. Uh, but most importantly, in doing your job in law enforcement, you, in my view, have to be apolitical. Sure. That's a sentiment I certainly agree with, uh, even if it is maybe out of style in some circles these days. Um, so with that background of, you know, 31 years or so prosecuting crimes in the state of Oregon, what do you make of Measure 110? I, I'm sure you dealt with a lot of drug crimes uh, in your various prosecutorial capacities. How would you describe 110? Let me start with I understand why people voted for it. People uh, were genuinely looking for a different way, if you will, an effective way of trying to help people suffering from substance abuse disorders into a better way of life, to facilitating them getting into treatment. And and so I understand why people voted for it. I, I didn't vote for it. I thought it was a bad idea at the time to decriminalize possession because, and I believe this to this day, and I think it's been borne out just by the facts as, as it's been, been highlighted and covered pretty extensively in the in, the media is it hasn't worked because if you take accountability away from as a tool, if you will, in the toolbox, it doesn't work. This has been documented in a number of really informative articles from The Atlantic, from The New York Times, uh, from Oregon Live, from Willamette Week, you name it, and many on the national level, it hasn't worked, which is why it's brought us to, I think, to where folks are at today with demanding a change, a fix to it, if you will, or outright recall. And so we'll see where all of that, all of that how it plays out with the short session coming up and, and then the election in November of 24. But I think We've all had an opportunity to learn about what doesn't work, what do we need. And the reality is it's, you know, our overdose rate is is so severe, so high. It's impacted so many people. And it's it, you, you combine that with what I call the three legged stool of substance abuse disorder, mental health um, disorders and homelessness. And that's a bad combination that we're all faced with in most communities. It's not just Portland, it's other communities as well. And so that's why the discussions are going on about what do we do with it? 
um, and who who fixes it? Is that going to come directly from the legislature or is it going to take um, the voters in November of 24? So I think that almost everyone listening to this right now agrees it's not working sure. because I've written and done enough podcasts about that. If uh, I probably attract people that are already opposed to Measure 110. From your background as a prosecutor, how is it that the criminal law interacted with substance abuse issues prior to 110 and after one. So was, as I understand it, and I'm not never been a criminal lawyer, that there were opportunities to kind of compel treatment uh, or sobriety under the old system. And those options are fewer or non-existent. Is that generally right? Right. Because with without criminalization of possession, and again, it's simple possession, um, then I, I think what the evidence shows is that there's there's no incentive, certainly no involvement um, with law enforcement unless there's some greater offense that occurs because of someone being under the influence. But it used to be that if someone was charged with simple possession, I can remember a period of time in, in the early 90s, um, my former boss, Mike Shrunk, and others started... Um, drug court. And I was uh, spent a period of time in the drug unit. And so we would be in drug court with the judge presiding over that docket with uh, defense counsel, whether you were a, a recent arrestee or someone who was coming back to check in with the judge. But the premise was, we're going to give you an option. You, If you agree to participate in treatment and you're successful, I think the period of time was about a year, that if you successfully complete the drug court program and get treatment and, and get other forms of assistance, whatever that may have required, um, then we would dismiss the charges. And there were other drug courts across the United States that that started and, and went on from there. And it was a having sat through those hearings and watching people impacted by what was going on. It was it was a great program. And so there are other forms of drug courts that were mm -hmm. in place prior to yep. Measure 110, yep. including in the federal system mm. here in Oregon. And so, you know, it was a way to have incentive accountability but with incentive that if you if you got yourself um, with the help of others through treatment and took advantage of other services being provided then your case was going to go away you wouldn't have a conviction now that doesn't mean if someone um, didn't commit another form of crime uh, whatever that might be whether it was uh, some property crime or uh, some kind of assault, or certainly if it was a robbery, uh, a serious assault, or or worse, homicide, and you were also in possession, then that wasn't going to be an option for you. So that all went away when Measure 110 came into effect. I mean, the notion uh, for police officers to write a ticket uh, for a citation for $100, um, that ultimately became has been demonstrated to be just an abject failure. The people that I can recall in the last uh, year or so who've been interviewed, who are living on the streets, using drugs, experiencing homelessness and some kind of mental health disorder, they would tell you that was a joke. Sure. Right. So that's not going to go anywhere. And so you're, if you've totally taken away the involvement of, of law enforcement and accountability, 
that program has failed. And so, um, again, whether you're you're in uh, the group of proposing fixes to Measure 110 or complete repeal of it, I, I can understand um, both of those concepts. I, I get the argument where people don't want it recriminalized. I just don't think that's smart, that it will work without the recriminalization, again, with off ramps right. for people to engage with treatment and other forms of assistance that they need to help them. Because if any anything um, has been demonstrated with Oregon's failed experiment is the seriousness of drug addiction. And it's even worse with the potency of methamphetamine and fentanyl on the street. And and I I don't know you've read any either one of Sam Kenyonis's books on on sort of the world of substance abuse and drug trafficking and the opioid crisis and his piece in the Atlantic this um, earlier this year I think very poignantly brought to light the failures of measure 110 and why why because if someone is addicted to one of these controlled substances of such potency they don't literally don't have the ability to seek help. Yep. The only thing they are compelled to do is to, to find the source of their uh, addiction. Yep. Right. It, yep. And so it is what it is. And, and I just think uh, with all the discussion going on right now, which I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled it's finally happening. These conversations need, need to take place. And those in positions to be making these decisions need to listen to everybody, all sides, all arguments. I don't agree that recriminalizing simple possession isn't an answer. I believe that it's part of it, as as well as other components that are being proposed. Yeah, I was reading uh, some article in the last few days, and I wish I could remember where, but it showed they somehow they'd pulled addicts, like hard drug addicts, and they found that 98% of them, these are active addicts, didn't want to go into treatment. And I thought about it and I'm like, yeah, well, no kidding. Because the addicts that want to go into treatment, for the most part, go into treatment. And it's the folks who didn't go into treatment who are still active addicts for the most part. And that that kind of criminal component that existed before Measure 110 was a tool to kind of nudge that 98% toward treatment because they could avoid some criminal penalties if they did so. I've been impressed with listening to over the last couple of years, people who talked about their addictions and were able to get through treatment. And, and, you know, in many ways, the stories are, are different and some very unique, but in, in most of them, um, there, there are similar stories, which is, I especially appreciated the honesty of folks who said, if it hadn't been for the criminal justice system, I would never have gotten into and through treatment. You know, there are there are a couple of counties around the United States, um, including, I believe, in the uh, city of Denver, as well as two other counties in the Midwest who um, and this was pointed out in in a couple of the articles from last summer. Um, they've uh, created components within the jails to provide for drug treatment, as well as um, counseling, educational counseling, job counseling, mental health counseling. But those pods in those jails are 
completely voluntary, right? They're all full and they're a waiting list. And I think it's interesting to read about those programs and the success that they've had. But the other component is the waiting list, right? Because people realized, and again, part of this is the carrot and stick approach, um, you know, in fact, might ultimately be a way for them to get out of jail to Mm -hmm. be able to complete this. But if it helps them in the other aspects of their lives that they're struggling with, then so be it, right? Yep. I just don't, even even the, the system in Portugal has a system of accountability yep. that wasn't included in Measure 110. And and again, I it is what it is. Enough voters voted for it. And again, well-intended voters, but it's those well-intended voters who are saying now, this isn't working. Right. This right. is destroying lives. It's destroying the livability of neighborhoods, and, and again, not just in the, the city of Portland, but other Correct. communities. And it's like, come on, folks, this is this is something you really need to pay attention to. You know, there was the hearing, I think it was last week. Um, so that was that was great. I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for members of the legislature who, who sat and listened to all that testimony. My observation of that is if if going into the short session, if the legislature doesn't come up with some solutions, then it may be that the voters completely recall it. Absolutely. I think that's the likelihood. If the legislature doesn't do anything, which I think is unlikely, they're going to do something because the political pressure is too high. Right. But if the voters deem it insufficient, they're, someone's going to do a ballot measure, whether it's Max Williams group or, or something else. And I know that obviously they've got, uh, they've got something underway already. Um, speaking of Portland, the uh, the governor's task force on downtown Portland just came out with some recommendations. They did not call for uh, repealing Measure 110 or even recriminalizing hard drugs. They did call for uh, banning public use of hard drugs. Um, the specific terms of that aren't defined yet. What's your take on that? Is that sufficient to solve the problem that we have do we need more? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I'm still working my way through the recommendations and the report that was provided. I think there's some good recommendations in there. Um, but I also think that it's not enough just to ban public use. Um, it's not enough not to include uh, recriminalization of simple possession. And again, um, depending on who you talk to and the group that you mentioned a moment ago with Max Williams and Kevin Barton, the DA in Washington County, they I, I know they spent a lot of time listening to people from all components of treatment providers, et cetera. So, you know, they've come up with some ideas uh, that include recriminalization. But what I would hope in what I don't know is if the committee that put out this report just I want to say yesterday. Yep. So I'm still working my way through that and their website. If there's more work they're going to do, if they're going to amend their recommendations. But I, I just think it's time for leadership at all levels in the state of Oregon, uh, county as well as state, to just face the reality of the devastating consequences of what was created by, again, well-intended voters and and also lots of money being provided in support of from outside the state of Oregon. Um, I'm, I'm not a fan of 
of the groups behind uh, Measure 110. I'm not a fan of millions and millions of dollars being spent in, in somebody's mind to recreate society in, in a different way. Yeah. Well, if this is one indicator of what that will look like, um, then it's a failure, yep. right? So we have, it's not just an option. In my view, if you're in uh, elected into the state legislature, House or Senate, um, you have an obligation to fix the problem, to show leadership, to do the right thing for the right reason. Um, my former uh, boss, Mike Shrunk, longtime DA, one of the, I think he was the second longest serving DA in the history of the United States. Wow. Um, he, he came up with innovative programs to work with the drug court, with communities. He, he was a big believer in community engagement and, and sought um, additional funding for programs that would help people um, get out of the criminal justice system. But he always said, no matter what the case was, the seriousness of the charge, or when we were looking at making decisions on cases, do the right thing for the right reason. And I know other people have said that, but that impacted me as a, as a deputy DA working for Mike for a decade. And it, it really crystallized my vision of what my responsibility was in the federal system as well. And I know it is, it's true for other people. Now is the time to just uh, own up to not just that it measure 110 is a failure. It's, it's, it, it, there is an absolute obligation to fix it. What that looks like is up for debate. I always hated the term, you know, the war on drugs, the terms, because sure. yeah. I, I, I understood sort of in principle what it was and the reasons behind it. But, you know, with, with the current fentanyl crisis and the uh, influx of narcotics from, from outside the United States and it's, killing people at record numbers and the potency is out of control. And so here we are in, in Oregon, there's, there's a reason there's so many drugs coming into the state is because there's no consequence for possessing it, Correct. for delivering it. Sure. And there's, there's a lot of cooperation that goes on uh, between the uh, state and local and, and federal law enforcement partners to intercept um, these very dangerous and deadly narcotics. But whatever it's called on the national level or state level to deal with narcotics trafficking by cartels, cartels are in the business of being drug traffickers and making money, right? Mm -hmm. um, they have to love the fact that Oregon decriminalized possession of drugs. Sure. And they're, they're, they're smart. Um, they, they know how to work around issues. I think Oregon, uh, frankly, owes the rest of the country to admit this is a failed experiment, to, to say that we don't need to wait a decade yeah. to watch it get even worse. We are going to be leaders in first admitting it's, it's a mistake and secondly, be a leader in how you fix it, because it helps you help your border states when you do this. Um, you help um, um, the population uh, around the United States that are looking at the same three legged stool that I described yep. earlier. Yep. And so it just I'm, I'm I'm not a fan of labels of 
making things up, you know, like the war on drugs or whatever. I, I don't know what you would call it, but there's a responsibility to take action in an informed way. And that requires leadership at every level and not politics. Yep. There's a distinction to be made between those two terms. And, you know, I've always said I've, I've got family and friends who are members of you know, the two main parties or, or independents or like me, uh, unaffiliated. And I like people across the board. I like people who make decisions to, to do the right thing for the right reason and to fix problems and not just do things for political gain and ideology that's dangerous. And that's what's behind Measure 110. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting, the confluence of <clears throat> politics and money in where 110 is right now. Because in theory, when you've got a legislature that has a citizen ballot measure in place, and then that citizen ballot measure becomes very unpopular, as is the case with Measure 110, um, and it's simply a statute, so the legislature can amend it or repeal it anytime they want, it would seem like a pretty straightforward thing for them to do so, politically, because voters hate Measure 110 now. Um, but what you have backfilling it is the ideology that you just described and the money from these national groups, the drug policy Alliance and, and allied groups uh, out at New York city, George Soros funded, et cetera, et cetera, that is buttressing the policy here. I mean, that's why 110, in my opinion, that's why 110 wasn't significantly dealt with in the last legislative session. And it's why the legislature and the governor are, are, kind of what I would call slow walking a solution to either getting rid of or fixing measure 110. They're, they're reticent, even though the politics would indicate from a voter interest standpoint that they ought to fix it. No, that's a great point. And I, and I guess, you know, ultimately the political lives, if you will, of those in elected positions will have to be determined by voters themselves. Right. I mean, I'm not a fan of, of the, um, uh, Soros back groups that are promoting decriminalization or promoting so-called progressive prosecutors. That's a whole nother subject. Oh yeah. Because um, what, what has been demonstrated in a very short period of time in, is that their ideology is a failure and that failure comes at the cost of human life. And if those in elected positions, in my view, you know, these are smart people. Right. And they they understand the role of their elected positions. The fact of the matter is, given the severity of the problems at hand, you know, it, the old adage is you get what and who you vote for. Then those cycles come around. And then if there's not a uh, legitimate effort and an honest effort at accountability on this and to turn the tide a different direction, then it's up to the voters. Sure. In the long run, right, to, to either um, keep those elected leaders or or not. And uh, I just I, I would hope um, and I know this is just hope, <laughs> um, you know, politics have a way of destroying a lot of things. And and, you know, I say that knowing there are extremes at, at both ends of the spectrums from the left or the right. And those extremes have brought us to just the travesty of 
the divide in this country. Um, this has been a long time in the making, but here we are. And um, that's why I'm, I'm of the view that, you know, at, at some point, common sense and civility and a commitment to, to those two premises comes into play in terms of decision making at every level. Now, we're not we're not there yet, obviously, nope. on the on the certainly at the national level. Um, and with us coming into the 2024 election cycle, we'll see where all of that goes. But but for Oregonians who've, as you pointed out, the poll numbers uh, speak loudly and clearly that this isn't working. This has to be addressed because it will help fix the other two legs of that stool beyond substance abuse disorders with mental health issues, um, you know, lots of issues that come to light over availability of mental health treatment, uh, beds at both the state level and county level. And and then there's been a lot of efforts, I think, that come into play in terms of addressing homelessness. So that's great. I appreciate uh, that and the leadership behind those efforts, but um, this is all tied together. This is an opportunity for Oregonians to fix the problem, and it it takes it takes smart decision making. I, I guess fundamentally, I'll go back to my point of if you're going to serve in an elected position, I guess maybe some people would think, oh, I got to play to the base, and I get that. Okay, I'm not a politician, so but I get it. But at the same time, if you're going to be in leadership that impacts every citizen in the state of Oregon, you got to make the right decision for the right reason. And when you have a problem that's so, so devastating, that's been brought on in, in part, large part because of Measure 110, you better fix it. You better. Yep. When lives are being lost. Yeah. And, and every, all of us have, uh, have some story, uh, some example from either friends that we know or our own families of someone who's had an addiction issue. And, and so I think all of us, we don't have to look too far to realize, you know, people need help with these problems. They're real problems that are now exacerbated by more potent drugs, uh, more potent everything, more potent THC and marijuana. That's a whole nother yep. topic, right? Yep. But it's this is one of those times in history, I think, that provides an opportunity for those in leadership to do the right thing with the right motivation and leave the, the ideology and the politics out of it. Well, Billy Williams, I cannot think of a better way to end this interview. And I appreciate your time. Thanks for coming in today. Thanks, Jeff. It's an honor to, to have this opportunity. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as I did. Uh, Billy is such a resource on issues like this. And he's the guy I like to ask whenever I have uh, a question about criminal law, because I don't know very much about it. He knows a lot about it and um, appreciate his views on, on measure 110. Thanks for listening. Um, if you uh, are not subscribed yet to the Oregon Roundup newsletter and podcast, you can go to the Oregon Roundup, all one word, dot substack dot com and sign up there. Thanks a lot. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Roundup podcast. To share your thoughts with Jeff, you can email him at jeff at OregonRoundup.com. You can also subscribe to his newsletter at OregonRoundup.substack.com.